praise. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Again, sanctify them, Jesus prays, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You may be seated. Take out your Bibles. Turn, please, to John 17. We'll be there. We'll be, uh, as we have been for quite some time, I want to continue uh, to share on this theme of sanctification, these couple of verses that uh, I uh, just read. Jesus prays a number of things in this prayer. And he prays for their sanctification, that is, the sanctification of those who are listening to him. But he also prays for our sanctification, because as we know, this prayer transcends the moment in Jesus' life, uh, transcends that particular group of people, and includes all those who will come to faith through the testimony, through the witness of these apostles, which, of course, includes us. So when Jesus prays that they would be sanctified, he's praying that we would be sanctified. Now, you may remember from last Sunday, this little word sanctified is, is kind of a funny one. It means to be made holy. If, 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 if language hadn't developed as it has, we may translate this as holify, that is, to make holy. And we know that there are various distinctions of this word sanctify. It comes from the word holy, of course, and it means to make separate, to set apart for a particular use. And again, while we don't use the word sanctify in, in our normal kinds of discussions, generally we could. We could use it generically, as we mentioned last, last week, if a cook is preparing soup and needs an onion, that cook could sanctify an onion, that is, take an onion out of the bag and set it apart from all the onions and go through a process of sanctification, that is, chop it up so that it's fit for being used in the soup, if you will, and then cook it. And all of that is sanctifying this onion. You sanctify a pencil when you buy the phone and, and you reach in the little cup with all the pencils and pens and you pull out a pencil uh, to write down the, the note and you sharpen it. That's sanctifying that pencil. It's setting it apart from all the others, making it fit for its purpose, and then you use it. Uh, a coach uh, sanctifies his players by uh, by uh, drafting them or asking them, calling them to be a part of the team and then putting them through practice and training so that they're fit for the game. Umpires, as we now all know uh, and believe, take a, a baseball out of the sack of baseballs and rub it with Delaware Valley Basin River mud so that it makes it fit for, for its use, to, it's sanctified in the game. Now, when we use that word sanctify, of course, we mean it in this holy kind of sense, set apart by God for his purposes, to glorify him. That's the honor, that's the glory of this sanctification. And, and we, we know that the stages, there's what some uh, have called definitive sanctification, or this once-for-all-time sanctification. That's God pulling us, if you will, calling us out of the world. That's why in the Bible that we can use this expression of Christians. They're the ones who are called. So they're the called ones, called out of the world. That's this sense of sanctification, calling us out of the world, setting us apart um, it's why the church is called the assembly of the called ones. I mentioned last Sunday that in Greek the word for church is ekklesia. Ek in Greek means out of um, kaleo, which is the second part of ekklesia. And that word uh, means to be called. So it's the ones who are called out of the world. It's this sense of, of being set apart. That happens when we're born again, that happens when we're converted, that happens when we're called out of the world and it's effective in our lives and we come to faith uh, and believe. So Paul could write, for instance, to the church in Corinth as those who have been sanctified, the sanctified ones. By that he means you've been called out to be followers of Christ. Um, that sense of definitive, once for all time, sanctification. In that sense, we're all sanctified. As Paul writes to Titus, Titus we've been washed, uh, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. So, so that sense of definitive sanctification. There's also a time of what we might call complete sanctification. That will happen 
upon our death. Most complete will happen upon the return of Christ. The scripture teaches that when a believer dies, we enter into the very, in the very presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That when we're out of the body, we're at home with the Lord. And so we're in the very presence of God. And as the author of Hebrews calls those who are in the very presence of God, those whose souls are made perfect. That is, these, these disembodied spirits, if you will, who are in the very presence of God, disembodied souls are in the very presence of God, holy before Him. But we must realize that our sanctification isn't utterly complete until we're completely whole and holy. And that will take place at the return of Jesus. When Jesus returns, there's the resurrection of the body. We're not simply souls, not simply disembodied spirits. We're human beings, and human beings have body and soul, material, immaterial, that which can be seen, that which can't, if you will, body and soul. And so we're redeemed completely. And so at the return of Christ, there is this resurrection of the body. And at that moment, we'll, be, we'll receive, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, as we read in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, uh, that we receive this new body that's incorruptible, that's pure, that's holy, will never be diseased, never die, will, will, will live forever. It's this imperishable, incorruptible body. And at that moment in time, this sanctification, this being made holy, will come to fruition, completion. It will be done, will live forever on the new earth, under the, 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 the glowing radiance of the presence of Christ forever. Okay? It will be completely, perfectly sanctified at that point in time. But there is a time now in which we live and this word sanctification is used to describe that as well. And it's this, this time of process, this time wherein we have been set apart by God for His purposes. And again, in that definitive sanctification, something stupendous has happened. Something monumental has happened. Um, and what has happened is at that moment in time, there is this break from the dominion of sin in our lives. We've been born again. We, at that point, uh, are new creations in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul puts it like this in Romans in chapter 6, as he writes, verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. There's this sense in which at this calling, at this conversion, at this being born again, there's this definitive break with the power of sin in our lives. That's what happens then. Um, we're born again, we're adopted into the family of God, we're justified. That is, that God looks at us as those who are righteous in His sight because we receive from Jesus His righteousness which clothes us. The history of theology, that has been called imputed righteousness, that we're counted righteous because of Christ. Martin Luther referred to that as an alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes from the outside is not really inherent within us, but it comes from the outside. All that takes place at this definitive sanctification, all that takes place at that moment in time when God calls us out and we hear His voice and we're, we're, we're changed at that point because we're born again. And this break with sin has happened. It no longer enslaves us. Yet we do know, however, that though it no longer enslaves us, we're still in the midst of it. It still impacts us. It still resides. It's still present. We're still at war with it. And it's that that's this 
progressive sanctification. It's there where we now live. It's doing battle with this sin that no longer controls us, no longer has dominion over us, no longer rules us, but is still there, that still resides. We all experience that. Oh, we've been counted righteous by God, but yet still now to be made holy in the context of our own lives to where the very character of Christ is formed in us, this transformation process. And it is indeed a process. There have been some in the history of the church who have desired this sanctification to, to be instantaneous. That is, that we can reach a moment or pray a prayer or be at a meeting or be prayer for, prayed for or in some way, shape, or form the Spirit would come upon us that at that moment in time would zap us in such a holy way that we would no longer ever sin after that. Now, there's some who believe that can happen and some who go to meetings and some who pray in that regard that, 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 that sin would be eradicated from their life and they would never sin again. Some, a few, have even claimed that that be true of them. Now, their spouses have never affirmed that. <laughs> their kids have never affirmed that. Their colleagues have never really affirmed that. But in a sense, that I've reached this point of perfect sanctification. It, it doesn't happen like that. Oh, that it would. Oh, that it were that simple. Many of us wouldn't, pray, wouldn't fast for a week so that at the eighth day we would be free of any temptation to sin, any sin at all. St. Augustine put our lives like this. He said, before coming to faith, we're unable not to sin. We just simply can't glorify God. There'll come a time after the return of Christ, even when we're in the presence of the Lord, when we will be unable to sin. I mean, just, that's just, just conceptually, just think about that. Be unable to sin. We can't sin. We won't. But now, we're at a point in time where we're able not to sin, but yet able to sin as well. And that's this time of of of. of Progressive, we could call sanctification. Progressive in the sense that we should be seeing in our lives some growth in holiness. It is that, for instance, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, let not, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life uh, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's how you're to live now. You're to live not presenting your bodies, yourselves, for unrighteousness, but righteousness instead. It's, it's that. Um, Paul speaks of this progress in holiness like this in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 3, verse 18, he writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, this is, this is how our lives are now. We're in process of being transformed. In fact, Paul would speak of his own life like this in Philippians in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of, of, of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I haven't attained it yet. I haven't attained the resurrection from the dead. Thus, I haven't attained this perfect sanctification yet. But I'm pressing on. I'm trusting that as I look to Jesus, I'm in this process of being transformed. And I'll be honest with you, it's hard to know exactly where we are on that line. Because, because the closer I get, then I take another glimpse of Jesus, and I feel farther behind than I was before. The closer I get, I look at some of you, and I feel farther behind. Well, sometimes I feel a little ahead. But you know what I mean. Uh, but, but it's hard to, to mark us on that particular line, right? Uh, and so, so you, you really can't do that. You can't say I'm at a 6 or a 10 or an 80 or a 90 or whatever that is because we simply don't quite know that perfection. 
But we know that we're being in process, that we're being transformed. Colossians in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul puts it like, like this. He says, and, and have put on the new self. This is catching him mid-thought. He's talking about the old self, which was prior to our conversion, if you will. New self now. He says, we put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed uh, in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's being renewed. So we, we still get that sense. So there's this funny past, present, and future aspect to our lives. There's this past part where we died to sin and all of that with Christ. There's this future part when we'll see that in all of its reality. But for whatever reason, there's that present part now where that which has happened and that which is to come is being played out in, in our lives as we're being renewed, being transformed, being made holy, uh, if you will. Thus, the author of Hebrews can put it like this in Hebrews and chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, all those who have gone before us who are cheering us on, all those who have gone before us who know, yes, there is an end to this. Yes, yes, there is this, this, this coming to fruition. And so I'm cheering you on. I know this is really hard. I know you're in the process of being transformed. I know all of that. I know it's difficult, frustrating, um, all of that, but, but, but this cloud of witnesses, all those who have gone before us in glory as, as if we've entered the Colosseum and they're in the stands cheering us on. He says, this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He's a man who knows what it is to live real life under God in this world. It clings so closely. The sin isn't something like over there. Sin isn't something like that's in you. This isn't just, you know, in Washington or wherever. This is, or in L.A., we know it's there. Uh, but this is, clings close to each one of us. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's a struggle, this struggle against sin. Internally, externally, it may result in shedding blood. This sin may come in persecution against us, or it may be less dramatic than that, but in this sense. And thus, First Peter, Peter, in First Peter chapter 1, reiterates, the Old Testament standard, the Old Testament truth about God. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This, this sense of sanctification, being sanctified, set apart, now prepared, now becoming fit, now being used by God. But we must be holy. Thus, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this. Question 35, what is sanctification? The answer is, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And we're enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. Again, it's the work of God's free grace, so it's a work of God in us, whereby we're renewed in the whole man, our whole being, and all of that after the image of God that is to be in his likeness. And we're enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. J.I. Packer puts it like this. I'm so much still in the midst of this whole sanctifying process that I find myself, when I teach about sanctification, I quote a lot of other people. All right, there you go. My, my confession. I mean, this is still so real in the whole, my whole life. I, I look to these others who, are, who I think are way, way beyond me in their understanding. But Packer, and this is a fine book, by the way. If you've not read this book called Hot Tub Religion, it may be under a different title. Is it under a different title now? It's still the same title. Hot Tub Religion. It's interesting because, well, if you know J.I. Packer and you think of a hot tub, you realize they cannot go together. He's just he's an old British guy that looks about as far from a hot tub as 
probably I do. But anyway, uh, but it's, 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 it's phenomenal. It's just one of his best works. But anyway, it speaks of this progressive sanctification. I mean, it's a long quote, but listen, this is worded better than anybody I've ever read. It says, the process of, of progressive sanctification is a transformational process, okay, that is lifelong. It's a transformational process that is lifelong and that is spoken of elsewhere in the scripture as growth in grace, growing up into Christ, being changed from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit. It is to this progressive transformation that the word sanctification regularly refers in Christian theology. We're talking about God's work of character change in Christians, about the life of God in the soul of man. Is that not a wonderful expression? Actually, it's the title of an 17th or 18th century work by a man named Henry Scrugel. That's the title of the book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. But it's about that, this whole progressive sanctification. Do you think about yourself as a person in whom God dwells, the life of God? It's about the fruit of the Spirit, about the outworking in our behavior, our new supernatural life that is hidden in Christ with God. We're talking about God working in us to make us will and act for His good pleasure, Philippians chapter 2. We're talking about the family likeness that God the Father wants to see in all His adopted children, the family likeness that is Christ-likeness, displaying the love, humility, and righteousness that constitutes the moral image of the Son who is, who is Himself the image of the Holy Father. We're talking about God supernaturalizing our lives. An expression that is... God supernaturalizing our lives and causing us to behave in ways in which left to our own resources we never could have behaved. We're talking about an ongoing spiritual mystery. If regeneration is a work of new creation, sanctification is a work of new formation. Regeneration, a work of new creation, making us new. But sanctification is a new formation, a spiritual formation in our lives. If regeneration is a new birth, sanctification is a new growth. If regeneration means our old nature nailed to the cross and Christ's risen life implanted, sanctification means our old nature dying and Christ's life within us flowing. Those he justified, he also glorified, said Paul. If regeneration is the glory, if regeneration is glorification in seed. That is, if regeneration, that means being born again. If that's the seed of that which is to come when we're in the very presence of Christ, then sanctification is glorification in the bud and glorification in heaven is the full flower. That is, what we're going through now is the bud. It's coming out. That which is going to be in full flower one day is now just sort of being seen, just coming out. Such is the frame of reference within which... Uh, what Walter Marshall, the Puritan, called the gospel mystery of sanctification. And it is that. It's all of that. It is Christ at work in us. What I want to do in just a few minutes is to ask and hopefully answer a couple of questions. Number one, what is this like? What's the sanctifying process really like in the context of our lives? Um, why does it have to be a process? Why can't it be instantaneous? What's this process really like? What's it feel like? And finally, what are our expectations? Uh, what's this, this, this like, this, and why does it have to be a process? Well, if we think about why it has to be a process, there's two obvious answers that I would give. One is that God has seen fit to glorify himself by sanctifying us in this way. It's his idea, not ours. It's his way, not ours. To go through this process, to draw us out of the world, to take away sin's ultimate dominion in our life, to implant his own life within our souls by the Holy Spirit, and then a day to come when we will be perfectly sanctified, perfectly holy in his presence. He's ordained that in this time we go through this process. So that's the first answer. The second answer is, I don't know. All right? I mean, that's the, the first one I know is right. 
But the second one, if you want more detail than that, I really don't know. I don't know why this and not some other way. But this is the way. We have to admit, as we read through the Scripture from beginning to end, we see that this is the way. It's this process of sanctification. We look into each other's lives. We know that we're not perfectly holy. We live with each other. We know each other. We know all of that. We know in the context of our own lives the struggle that we go through to be holy, to choose that which is righteous, to do that which is right for the right reasons in the sight of God. We, we know the struggle that we go through. So we we know that this is indeed a process. I trust that as we look into our experience and the experience of others, and even the expectation given to us by the Scripture, that we realize that there is a measure of growth in this. It isn't instantaneous, and it might not even be perfectly linear. It has its ups and downs, but, but when we look, I hope, after five years, after ten years, after fifteen years of walking with Christ, after even more, that we can look back and see that, yes... I'm on this path, I'm on this road, I can see it, not in an arrogant kind of sense, but yes, in a grateful kind of sense, to see what it is that God has done in the context of my own life. But we can also say this about it, that it's the way of Christ. That for whatever reason, and for, for, for what other reason could be, we know that this is true for the Lord Jesus as well. There is an astounding sentence or two. There's lots of astounding sentences or two. But in this context, in Hebrews, in chapter 5, verse 8, of Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's some qualifiers here. But this is the way of Jesus. He, too, lived it out. He, too, learned obedience in the midst of the world by the things that were difficult, by the things that he suffered. Now, when we speak of Jesus, we're not saying that he learned obedience because he had been disobedient and now he needs to learn the right way. But he experienced obedience as a human being, as a man, that which he hadn't experienced, if you will, in that same sense as the Lord of glory before becoming a man. But he, 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 he took on flesh, he lived our lives, and he learned obedience. And notice what it says, and being made perfect, that is, by this obedience he was made perfect. Again, that doesn't mean he had been imperfect and now he's perfect, or he had been sinful and now he's sinless. What it means is that he, would, he was made fit by way of this obedience. He was made fit for the purpose for which God had called him. And the purpose that for which God had called him was to be our high priest. And a high priest, if he's going to be a real high priest, has to get it. He has to understand. He has to know. He has to sympathize. He has to empathize. He, he needs to know and, and, and relate to those whom he represents. That's the nature of being a priest. And so, to be our merciful high priest is the logic of God's theology goes here, that Jesus left the throne, took on human flesh, learned obedience, learned what it was through suffering to be a man and to follow after God so that he could be made perfect in order to represent us. We follow that logic. I think the reason for this process of sanctification goes something like this, that God sets us apart, changes our hearts, gives us His Spirit and His Word, and now in this time, He's making us, in some sense, fit for glory, fit to be in His very presence. He's clothed us with the righteousness of Christ, but now that clothing is becoming internalized. For instance, Paul puts it like this to his son in the faith, Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter 4. And verse, middle of verse 7. He says, Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I have to be honest with you, I, I don't know all that that means. But I do know there's this great sense of purpose for now in this struggle of obedience, in this learning obedience 
in this process of sanctification. It's beneficial now, most certainly. I can list all the benefits. But he says, mysteriously and amazingly, intriguingly, drawingly, he says, it also makes you, prepares you for the life that's to come. As I said during the offering time, if you don't like holiness now, you're going to hate heaven. Because that's the taste that we're given of glory, that we long for it even more. It's this process, most, uh, most certainly. Um, it flows out of our union with Christ. The Westminster Confession puts it, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's still God at work in us. Um, when Paul speaks of, of our lives in Philippians in chapter 2, he, he says that it's God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who's at work in us. It's God's spirit in us. It's, it's God who's, who's, who's working in us. It's why our good works are called the fruit of the spirit. It, it comes out, it's born fruits out of a life filled with the spirit of God. But that doesn't mean that we're passive. God engages us in this process of sanctification. Now, I'm going to give you some theological... I know I've been a little headier today than average, but <laughs> deal with it. This is who we are. We need to know these things. Now, you want to deal a little theology here. This term regeneration, that means being born again. We're utterly passive in that. That's a work of God. Uh, the image that Jesus gives Nicodemus is that of a child being born. Um, and we all know that the child who's being born was completely passive in that child's conception. You know biology, we don't have to go there, right? You know that the child didn't choose to be born. This child was conceived, the decision of another. So regeneration, Jesus' point, is a work of the Spirit. We are completely and utterly passive. It's a work of God. However... This work of sanctification is a work of God with our involvement. There's many ways that theologians have tried to express this over the years that we cooperate in our sanctification with God in some way. None of these responses, none of these ways are very satisfying to us because we really do know that it primarily, if you will, for lack of a better term, depends upon God. It's his work in us. If he drops out, all of our efforts are for naught. So we know that he begins it and he's at work in it. But yet, mysteriously, we know that he calls us to obey him and calls us to follow him. And we know, too, mysteriously, that sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And when we do, we thank him. And when we don't, we confess. So we know that we're involved and he's involved in some mysterious kind of way in this process of sanctification. Thus, Paul, when he writes to the church in Philippi, says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's how Paul would put it. He's saying, you, take hold of this. Work it out. But what you're working out, remember, is what God has worked in. This isn't something that you've originated. It's something that God has worked in. Now, now you take... You're involved in this. This is your life. And so work it out in this. Paul applies this in his own life, in, in just his very, the subtlety of his own language. For instance, when he writes to the church in Colossae, he wrote this in Col writes this in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, that is Jesus we proclaim. He's talking about his, his ministry, his life. He says, Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul doesn't know how to put it himself. And so he says, I'm, I, I'm, I'm toiling, I'm struggling, but I know that I'm using his energy. Now, if you ask Paul, are you tired at the end of the day? He'd say, oh, yeah. Do you expend energy? Oh, Sure. But I know that it's energy that God gives me. And that's how he expresses it. When he writes to the church in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 10, he puts it like this. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, 
And his grace toward me was not in vain. Grace is that which is a gift. His grace wasn't in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So God's grace produced work in me, caused me to do stuff. I worked harder than any of them. Though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see how it is. You read in the Old Testament battles, who fought the battle? Was it David or the Lord? And the answer, of course, is yes. It was God who fought and God who got glory for the victory. But it was David's sling and stone. He had to be involved. That's this whole work of sanctification. It's, it's both and. It's a yes. It's God. It's me. Yes. It's all of us together. But if he's not in it, then, of course, it doesn't work. It isn't just me being passive and letting go and letting God. It isn't just me being active, thinking, well, he's done this for me. Now I need to get on with it. It's me living independence, not independent, but in space, dependence upon him. Our dear friend Jerry Bridges puts it like this. He calls it a, a, a dependent discipline. You might remember his image if you heard him speak about this a number of years ago or read his book, The Discipline of Grace. You'll find in one of the chapters an airplane, just a little silhouette of an airplane and with this wing that goes across. And you need both wings. You need both sides, if you will. One is called the dependence. The other is called discipline. So we're trusting him and that trust in him causes us to walk in faith, to to move out to work. Um, Francis Schaeffer, who was known for his odd terms, referred to it as an active passivity. Passive in the sense that we're trusting, active in the sense that we're acting, that we're getting on with it. We're just not sitting and and waiting for us to become holy, but we're actually involved in this. And and the Bible speaks in, in very dramatic terms about what all of this, uh, what all of this is like. For instance, Jesus, uh, puts it like this in John or I'm sorry in Luke in chapter 9 He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says, this isn't a once once and done thing. If you're going to follow me, take up your cross, which means you're going to crucify your sin. You're going to crucify your self-centeredness. You're going to crucify your pride. You're going to crucify your convenience. And you're going to come and follow me. And this is a daily thing. This isn't something you did last week and it's still affected today. This is, you're doing this daily. You're taking this up uh, all the time. Uh, Paul speaks of his own life in the midst of this, although it's hard to know exactly about whom Paul is speaking, but, but his words resonate with us all. In Romans in chapter 7, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I, I don't understand my own actions. For I do not uh, do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do... Uh, what I, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good, so... Now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't do, what, I don't do the good I want, but the evil I, I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but... In my inner being, but I see the members of my members, uh, in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I mean, anybody relate to that? And that sense of struggle, because it's, it's really there. Um, in Ephesians, Paul speaks of taking off the old man, putting on the new man in very dramatic form in the book of Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Uh, Kim Grubbs is presently teaching a Sunday school class on this subject of mortifying the flesh, sin and temptation, a book called by John Owen. But it's based on this text to mortify, to put to death these sinful deeds that, according to Peter in First Peter chapter 1, war against our souls. 
Now all of us who struggle with this know how it feels. Though we know that God's involved, it very much feels like we're on our own. When we face temptation, we know the word, and we know how it is that we're to live. We very much often feel like we're on our own. We know that we're not, but we know that's how it feels. You read the psalmist and you know they felt that way, that God had abandoned them. Why have you abandoned me, God? Why am I laid low in the dust in the midst of this circumstance? They knew that God hadn't abandoned them. You read the whole psalm, God finally, by about two-thirds of the way down, God usually shows up and they worship Him. But, but you get that sense, we know how that, how that feels. Oftentimes when people are going through a deep struggle, I say, you know, you're only in the first half of your psalm. You're in the midst of this struggle. You should begin by declaring God's goodness and presence, but then explain your whole life and say, but it doesn't feel like He's there. He'll show up. A day will come when you'll write the end of that psalm, and you'll say, ah, oh, God met me here, and now I worship. But that's how, that's the course, the very course of, of life. And Jerry Bridges describes this process of sanctification as a tug of war. If you can picture that for a minute, this tug of war, two sides, big rope in the middle, and usually there's this big mud thing that nobody wants to get pulled into. And you know how tug of wars usually go. At the end, you can see who won because one's muddy and one's standing smiling. But you know that, that perhaps if the teams were fairly evenly matched, that, that, that there for a moment it, it looked like the team that ultimately won was very close to the mud. And they may have felt like they were doomed, but then they pulled back. And, then they pulled. and there's this sense, isn't there, in the context of our lives, that for a time we feel like we have this victory over sin. And, and then... It feels like we're being drugged back in, and then, we, and then we're drugged, and then certainly that's this process for whatever mysterious reason that God places us in and calls us to and through. Uh, J.I. Packer writes this later about sanctification. He said, "Our living should accordingly be made up of sequences having the following shape." We begin by considering what we have to do or need to do, recognizing that without divine help we can do nothing. We confess to the Lord our inability and ask that help be given. Then, confident that prayer has been heard and help will be given, we go to works. And having done what we could, we thank God for the ability to do as much as we did and take the discredit for whatever was still imperfect and inadequate, asking forgiveness for our shortcomings and begging for power to do better next time. In this sequence, there is room neither for passivity nor for self-reliance. On the contrary, we must first trust God and then on the basis of, of that work as hard as we can and repeatedly find ourselves unable to do what we know we could not have done by ourselves. For this happens through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, which is the wellspring and taproot of all holy and Christian action. This sequence... We're first confronted by God in His Word. Jesus has sanctified them by the truth. This Word comes. Who are we to be? How are we to live? And we read that. We, we get a glimpse of, of all of that. We recognize, we consider what we have to do. But then we recognize we can't without the very help of God. Or we can do the superficial things. We can do the easy things. At least we think we can do the easy things. But, but when God calls us to really love, really love, we know what that means. When God calls us to really be patient. When God calls us to really be compassionate. As Jesus is compassionate. Not just pity another, but enter into their very moments and help them. And help them because we can't not help them. Help them because we're moved to help them. Help them because if, if they're not helped, we're miserable. We identify so with their misery. You know what real compassion is. We know what real truth-telling is. We know what real justice means. We know what it really means to forgive. We know what it really means to be kind towards another, wishing their best, not wishing we exalted, but wishing their best. We, we know really what it means to be good, to be good all the way down to motive, to be good all the way down to purity of heart. We, we know what that means. and We know what that means in terms of sexual purity. We know what that means in terms of honesty. We know that, what that means in speaking good words to others. We know what that means. And when we, we really get down to it, 
we know we can't be that. We know we can't do that. So we know the calling that God brings to us. And we know that we in and of ourselves can't. We can't do anything. We know our inability. So then what do we do? Where does that send us? That should send us first and foremost to our knees, asking God to help us. If we skip that step, what we've essentially done is saying, I can do this, God. I can show you that I can do this. Just give me a minute. Give me some time. I'll grit my teeth. I'll love them and you'll be proud of me and I'll be really proud of myself. When we go to our knees, you see, so much of our lives are sending us there. Right? Sending us to our knees. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we see this, we this, see this, Ascending urgency in prayer. Ask, keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Because Jesus has just been given us the way that we're to live. And he ends that prayer by saying, now, here's how this is done. You go to your knees. You don't just skip that. You don't just think, well, Jesus has commanded it, so I should go do it. No, no, no. no. Understand this begins, Jesus says, in me. So ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. That God will enable you to do this. And there's this this urgency. There's This is all that matters. I finally get it. I finally realize this is how I'm to be. I'm to be holy. And so I go to my knees and I keep asking. And when I fail, what do I do? He says, all right. He says, ask that help be given. Then confident that prayer has been heard and help will be given. That's a step we must sincerely take as well. We do this sometimes, this prayer superficially, and we don't think God has really heard us, and we don't think God is really, really going to help us, and so we don't step out, or we do step out, but still we feel alone. He says, no, go on this, this good trust in God that he's heard your prayer, and then go to work, that is, go after it, go do it. And having done what we could, we thank God for the ability to do as much as we did. Don't beat yourself up initially, but thank God. I was a little more patient than I was before. That's not great, but it's better, isn't it? You know, I would have never reacted like that yesterday. But today, because of the power of God, I was able to be more patient, more loving, more kind, more understanding, more compassionate, more just. Thank God for the ability to do uh, as much as we did. Because you see, if we don't thank him, then, then we're denying his work in us. We're despising what he's done. So we thank him. And then, of course, we take discredit for whatever was still imperfect and inadequate. Asking forgiveness for our shortcomings. Again, another step that can't be neglected. We can't just simply run over that. We have to acknowledge, all right, I didn't do this. Not to beat ourselves up, because always when we're asking forgiveness, we're asking it in the context of the forgiveness of Christ. So it will be given. But it's acknowledging, saying, I still understand there's work to be done. Please, I'm sorry. And then begging for power. I love the way he puts it. It isn't just an asking. It's a begging. Not in the sense that Jesus doesn't want to give. Not in the sense that God is reluctant to give. But begging in the sense that I'm saying that if I don't get this, I will die. Beggars don't beg only because they think that the giver is reluctant. But beggars beg because they know this is their last resort. They know that if they don't get this food or whatever for which they're begging, they'll die. That's why when you go by someone who has a cup out and you walk by them and they're not upset with you for not giving, they're not begging. Beggars are desperate. Beggars will try anything. Beggars will say anything to get it because they know that if they don't, they'll die. And he said, we need to beg for this. Again, not because God is reluctant. That's not the image. It's our own understanding of our bankruptcy and our need. Begging for power to do, to do it better next time. That's the sense. Now, what confidence do we have? We have the confidence in Jesus who said, for this... I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified. There's good hope for us. Even in the midst of the struggle, even in the midst of the ups and downs, even in the midst of the tug of war, even in the midst of this warring against our flesh, even in the midst of our, our failures and our sin, there's good hope for us. Why? Because Jesus sanctified himself for this very purpose that we would be made holy. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us. God, we would be a holy people, not an arrogant people, but a holy, humble people. Humble because we know it's your work in us. 
So I pray for me and for us that you would do all of this in that regard. Father, I pray that we would be a kind people. I pray that we'd be a forgiving people. I pray we'd be a merciful, compassionate people. I pray we'd be a just people. I pray we'd be a loving people. I pray, God, that we would be a people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, a people that love your word because in it we find you and in it we find guidance and in it we find help. I pray that we would be a praying people going to our knees begging for this, all that we need. Father, I know that there are those in our congregation who are in deep need. I pray you would meet every need that they have, that they would not be tempted in such a way as to go astray, but rather they would be tried and found faithful and true. Sanctify them, Father. For all of us, as we know our own struggles, I pray, God, that you would be gracious to us. Give us help. For if you do not give us help, we will not be helped. Enable us, strengthen us, empower us. We may walk with you. For missionaries among us, today we think of the Macomurries. As Mark completes his education, sanctify him. Work in him, Father. For those who are ravaged by the storms that we are all facing, especially in Texas right now, sanctify cause us to fall to our knees to seek your help and to seek your grace and for us as the church Father be with us that we may walk as Jesus walked in holiness in Christ's name I pray Amen please stand for the benediction our response is to sing together Remind you that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that. Elders will be stationed around the office area, so please, please, if you have a particular need, go there. I know I'm running late, I'm sorry, but uh, please go there. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before His glorious presence. Think about that. Think about that. He is able to present you blameless before His glorious presence. And He does that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing.